Hi everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. Today's guest is Hanif Fazl, who's the CEO of the Center for Equity and Inclusion. Hi Hanif. Hi. Thanks for joining me today. No so fun being here with you and and chatting for a bit about what you're up to. So I wanted to see if you could first explain exactly what Center for Equity and Inclusion really is and what you guys do. So the center was kind of developed out of um, kind of a number of experiences that I had both personally and then professionally um, that kind of culminated in this idea that um, really around this concept of space and what does it take to create spaces where people have what they need to thrive and not just sit in survival, but really thrive and contribute to wherever they are to the hundred to, to their fullest in yeah. that sense. Um, and so there was just this kind of preoccupation. What, what does it take to do create a space like that? And where our focus went to obviously was this place where we spend most of our time, which is work workspaces. Mm -hmm. And so we really were interested in trying to figure out um, how do you create workspaces um, and a workspace being kind of a cross sector, whether it's a teacher in a classroom mm -hmm. or whether it's a corporate space or whether it's a nonprofit space that was truly inclusive. That was a space in which um, was considering communities or people within the workspace uh, that had traditionally not been um, included or considered. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean for organizations? So our work is really to work with organizations um, over a long period of time, anywhere from one to three years mm -hmm. and helping them uh, really build culture um, around uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion uh, in which there's common language around what that means, in which there's a real value around inclusion, uh, in which um, there are it's, it's almost kind of built into the identity of the organization and then helping that organization figure out once we have a whole value system around this and a real commitment around this, what does it mean for us to integrate it into all aspects of what we do mm -hmm. from how we budget to how we market to how we uh, raise dollars to uh, how we serve whatever our customers we're serving. Mm -hmm. So in all aspects of who we are, how do we um, how do we show up in a way that really is inclusive? both internally in terms of our staffing and our culture internally and to externally what we do. I love that. Yeah. yeah, That's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. What, and what's your background in, or have you had any personal experience of experiences of discrimination that have brought you to this work? Yeah. I um, some folks have asked about that. And I think um, there's a number of experiences um, and I'll say maybe one or two that really are I think formative and to the center. Um, one is uh, growing up. So my, my father's Indian immigrated to the United States. He never actually graduated high school, but somehow found a, um, a trade school in India. Mm -hmm. um, and so was an electrician. Um, and so he immigrated to the United States, met my mom who was Mexican um, and barely graduated high school. Um, and born in Chicago, we moved out to Portland, Oregon. And one of the things when I was in, it was a suburb of Portland out there. And one of the things growing up there that became instantly, um, just an instant impact was that everywhere I looked it, um, the community, this, my school experience just didn't reflect my home culture. Mm. So whether it was, um, the sports teams I played on, whether it was the, the school I was in, 
everywhere I looked, it didn't reflect me in any kind of way. Mm -hmm. And so specifically when I was in school, uh, it was just such a foreign experience, if that makes any sense. So like uh, when I, I was this from the time I was in preschool all the way to my second year in college, I never one time had a, a teacher of color a counselor of color, uh, a school secretary of color, you name the wow. personnel that never intersected with me, much less uh, someone who was Mexican or Indian mm -hmm. either. Right. Um, and so it's really interesting, too, because Portland has a, such a diverse population um, or from my time there. But it seems so like segregated in a way. Well, it is. And um, at the time when I, I was in a predominantly white uh, community in Portland mm -hmm. is massively, you know, it is incredibly white as a city. It is, yeah. And so, you know, what was interesting is growing up in that space, um, you know, if I opened up the textbook, I read a history that wasn't mine. Um, when I uh, was in lang my language arts class, I was reading authors that were not from me. Um, and so there was an experience there of being in an institution that in so many ways was never constructed for me yeah. or, or you. It, it was, and so was so unable to thrive in that space. Um, and so if I think about my education, I'm being constantly in a situation where uh, in a lot of ways I was told every single day that who I was really didn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, like my culture didn't matter, where I came from didn't matter, my history didn't matter. Uh, my voice didn't matter. Uh, it was just a really deep seated message that education gave me that took, would take years to Unravel. unpack. And so mm -hmm. when I think of that experience and the center's work, there's one other thing my, um, that was deeply impactful. And so at 16, my, um, my mother left and my father was out of the picture early. And so I kind of found myself very abruptly parentless and our school district would have identified me as homeless mm -hmm. and didn't know what to do. And there was a, a, my girlfriend at the time who was 18 was getting kicked out of her house. And so we ended up in a low income housing complex in, in downtown Portland. And it was, uh, it was kind of an incredible experience there at 16 because I'd always grown up poor. Now, this was poverty at a whole nother yeah. level. And I remember we got in there because the, the rental agreement was $194, all utilities paid. <laughs> I was making about $3.50 an hour, so you can date me. What uh, were you doing? I was working in a retirement home. Oh my gosh, know. at 16. Yeah, so part like going to school when I, when I felt yeah. like it, <clears throat> doing that. And so we had very little money. Uh, to kind of get by. But aside from all of that, what I remember most was being in a, a situation where everywhere you look, there is oppression happening. So whether it was a prostitute in the hallway mm -hmm. or whether it was the homelessness that just surrounded me, whether it was the drug dealer across the way, whether it was kind of the dysfunction just happening, everybody in that space was just trying to survive. Yeah. Like when I was in there, it wasn't like, Hey, one day I'm going to get out of here. One day I'm going to own this complex. One day <clears throat> there was no one days. It was like, how do I just make it through today? And mm -hmm. what was interesting to me about that time, I mean, it, it left kind of all kinds of impacts on me, but specifically for the center, 
none of us had any agency in there. So it was when we were in there, it wasn't like I felt like I could say, hey, let's organize ourselves and get the the drug dealer out or let me yeah. go tell the manager. And there was no signs from the space that were telling me that my voice mattered, mattered included any of that. So being in that kind of space where, again, I had this experience of, I don't actually think I matter. Like, I don't actually think I count. I don't mm. actually think um, anybody is actually considering me. And to feel such a sense of powerlessness. So even if I, let's imagine the manager was very open to suggestions from the residents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would not have ever felt internally like that was okay, that I could actually do that. I wouldn't have known how to actually go and voice whatever yeah. I want to do. So being in a space where both the space isn't giving you any sign that you're welcome and is just seeing you as a product or something that they can uh, consume or make uh, money off of, feeling that way left such an imprint <clears throat> in my life. So it is in so many ways again, like when we, when I talked earlier about like, what does the center do and has this preoccupation of space? It's because I've been in spaces in, that weren't constructed for me and mm -hmm. really weren't constructed for most folks. And so for me, it has been, okay, what does it actually mean then to rethink the foundation that our spaces sit on? And instead of one being that one that is inclusion or around oppression or around underserving uh, certain groups, having it be one that is really inclusive. Mm -hmm. It's been super formative in that sense for me. Wow, that's so incredible. I I love the work that you're doing. It's so important. And to have that personal experience just makes it, um, just you understand it's so much deeper mm. than just coming in and saying, this is what we need to do. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, though, how when did you hone in on this feeling? Because I think... It, I mean, it takes a lot of time and effort and work to even understand what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, were you aware of it at the time? No, no, because at the time, you know, in, in that space, you're just, in that time, I'm just surviving, trying to, like, make it through the day. <clears throat> what What it did for me, though, is as I was able to get out of that situation, my first thought around this was um, I need to make sure people like me um, have, can make it through these experiences. So I wasn't thinking about how do we reconstruct space, all that stuff that was in being nurtured. Um, and so the first place for me was kids. And so I spent over 20 years um, in low income communities, primarily communities of color, working with kids who were really on the margins, mm -hmm. um, really struggling to stay connected or engaged in the systems they were a part of. And my job would be, more or less to build programming to help re-engage and sustain them in these systems. So I was for a long time trying to help kids like me when I was younger, um, figure out how to navigate these spaces and how to find a sense of empowerment in a system that was clearly designed to oppress them. Mm -hmm. So that work and being in that system and facilitating conversations with kids and families, one of the things that became really apparent to me was I was seeing the same disparities show up every year. So a new batch of kids would come to us every year. They would look the same. They would be coming from the same places. Mm -hmm. They would be having different stories, but generally the same mm -hmm. story. And there were a few stories there, a couple in particular that at a certain point I, I realized 
I am going to see this. I've heard a thousand stories at this point of kids in very intimate settings and family members in their homes or in, in, in programming they're doing very intimate settings talking about the deep level of kind of oppression they were feeling and what was happening in, to them. And it just became so predictable. And so I really wanted to understand why could the, could someone's color of their skin be so predictive of their life experience or their actually their zip code and their color of skin be so predictive. And I wanted to understand, was I somehow unintentionally participating in this or colluding with it? Was I, was I doing the right thing? But what I was clear that it wasn't the kids um, or it wasn't the families. Cause what I would see with these kids and families, what they would be in, you know, struggling with all kinds of things, but there was so much, um, brilliance. There was uh, so much creativity, so much innovation, mm -hmm. so much, uh, so much thoughtfulness, so much intellect happening, but it was not, they, they had so many barriers. So, many, so I wanted to get a sense of like, okay, what's going on here? If it's not the kids and families that it's just not some kid, it's just not Latino kids or native kids or black kids saying, well, I don't care. You know, I, I'm just not going to work hard or try hard. Yeah. What if I saw that they were actually, they did care. They were working hard. They were trying hard. They had all the characteristics that they needed to, to thrive and just to, to make something of themselves in the world. And yet they were struggling to do that. Why? Mm -hmm. If they had everything, why were they doing that? And that's started where that, in my thinking too, where I'm like, why, what was happening for me? And the kids would bring things up that would have me reflect on, choice making or places where I didn't have choice. Yeah. So that's where that kind of thinking started to move from. I'm not going to work anymore directly with kids, which I think is the most valuable work we can do is direct service, but more of like, there's something structural here. Mm -hmm. And I want to begin to figure out what is that struct? What's the structure in place that is keep creating these dis perpetual disparities and what is my role in dismantling them? Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of been the, the trajectory. So I started working with adults and systems and all that, that stuff. And and when did you start uh, CEI? CEI is a baby. So I started CEI about two and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I had been doing this work before that on my own and within a nonprofit that I was with. So I was with a nonprofit that was a predominantly white nonprofit and wanted to, this was years ago, start diversifying itself and had an influx of folks of color. So wanted to be more diverse and at the same time wanted to make sure folks of color <clears throat> was how we were defining it at that time. Um, really felt like they could, it, it was a culturally responsive space. And so we had no roadmap or anything like that. <clears throat> and we just kind of jived, jumped into it. And 10 years later through, <clears throat> excuse me, through lots of mistakes and things we did right, uh, the, the organization did a pretty significant transformation enough so that other organizations were noticing. Mm -hmm. um, and one foundation in particular, Meyer Memorial Trust Foundation, in, um, located in Portland, noticed they were um, just entering into the conversation, um, had had kind of a bad experience before. And Doug Stam, who is the executive director there, connected me and someone named Glenn Harris, who's now the CEO of Race Forward, um, together to ask us to help kickstart their equity process. Mm -hmm. So that work allowed me to take what I was doing at this nonprofit and say, okay, 
it's 10 years. There's got to be a faster way mm-hmm. to, <laughs> there's at least four years of mistakes that I can just like wipe yeah. out. So there's got to be a faster way to help an organization build the foundation to, or build capacity to drive this work forever. And so the work with Doug and Meyer allowed me space to actually take that and try it on. And then that opened the door for other organizations and then the center. What are some of the things that you put in place though? Mm -hmm. And also what makes an organization want to change in the first place? Do you think they just want to be a part of the conversation and uh, do some people just want to have a certain image? Yeah. So I, when we started the center, um, because of the experience I had in this nonprofit and because of the experience with Meyer, I wanted to, what I noticed was in the field was um, two things. Let's imagine an organization want to do it for all the right reasons. Well, I'll come to that second. Mm -hmm. They, they had two options. They could do a diversity training that was, excuse me, that was like two days long or three days long and people would go and they would have an epiphany and they would say, oh, wow, I didn't. And realize I'm white. I'm white. I can't believe this. This is crazy. Or like, oh, I never knew how to talk about this. Now I do. Right. That kind of stuff. But then they would end the three days and they would be like, okay, well, what do I do with this? Especially in a work kind of comp. Or there's actually assessments that you can take that will help you locate um, disparate policies or practices in your organization and help you kind of close them. But same thing in those, you couldn't... um, you wouldn't know how to do that or there might not be the will to do that. So our belief was that there needed to be something that wasn't kind of a check the box thing where I did my two hour diversity training. We're good. Or I did my, you know, assessment and we're good, but something that was more transformational mm-hmm. in, in place that really helped build common language, common framework, uh, build a culture around this and then dive into integrating across policy, a, a more having an organization operate from one kind of way with one identity and transforming that identity and operating out of that identity um, and, and just building capacity for that. So when we were doing our process, when I launched the center, I was like, why am I doing this? Um, I have a two year old who I love very much. I have a very sound job and I could draw you a literal map back to homelessness for me. I was like, Mm -hmm. I, all these things are going to fall apart. I'm going to be the worst father and husband mm-hmm. of the year. And I'm going to be like, Oh my gosh. Uh, and because I really didn't, the question you have around like who, who I was a little cynical, um, and yeah. feeling like what organization mm-hmm. is, what would, what organization is actually going to give up at minimum a year when most of the time they've been told, Oh, you only have to do this for two days. Mm-hmm. Right. And two days is a big ask. Right now I'm asking for in a year and a lot of time, why would anybody want to do this? Um, if they at the top don't see right. the problem. Right. Yeah. So what was interesting in Portland, and this is partly a, um, an outcome of my Memorial Trust work, uh, was that there was starting to be in philanthropy. Um, a bigger push around these issues around equity. So it started showing up in grant proposals. It started showing up in uh, kind of requirements, you know, and all that. So nonprofits were seeing that they were going to have to integrate equity into the work that they were doing or they weren't going to get funding. Mm. So, and they had no idea what this was. Yeah. Right. So if if I just said equity, and why do you say equity over equality or are they the same? No, 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 no. So when that's a great, so, we're using three words, right? Diversity, 
inclusion and equity, right? So if diversity is um, all the differences, mm-hmm. right? Both visible and not visible. Um, and it can be race. It can be who's an introvert and extrovert. And inclusion is about how do we engage the multiple perspectives that diversity brings um, and have them actually drive how an organization, uh, drive an organization's culture, mm-hmm. organizations, how it operates, right? Um, then equity is about locating where are the disparities that are showing up in our organization and what are, can we do to close that? And the mm. actions to close that is what we call equity. So in other okay. words, anytime I am trying to get an equal outcome or equal um, equal access and I'm removing barriers to do that or I'm taking action. So what happens, I'm, I'm doing equity work, right? So the common thing when we talk about equity and equality, equality for us values equal inputs. It says everybody gets the same amount mm-hmm. from the start and it makes a really critical assumption that everybody starts from the same place. Yeah. Equity says we want everybody to get to the same outcome. I love that. And makes a different assumption, which is that we all start from different places. So in order to do that, we need to do differentiate what we're giving to people. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's funny because equity equality has always been seen as fairness, kind of a, like yeah. almost synonymous with fairness. Right. Yeah. But when we pull back and kind of reflect on it, we can begin to see that really equity is focused on fairness and justice, right? Mm-hmm. And not that equality is bad, because um, there's places where equal-based policy or practice is helpful and is fair. But more often than not, um, what we're trying to do is, uh, for me, equity equity is almost synonymous with fairness and justice. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's where those two are. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. That question happens every time. And, every, and in organizations, it... Um, it's actually super complex, mm-hmm. right? And so let's imagine you're a CEO and you're doing this work. You start to engage new new perspectives that you hadn't been before. So you're becoming more inclusive. And let's imagine one of them, one of the perspectives that you're starting to engage are women, right? And all of a sudden women are starting to bring up their experience in the workspace, including let's say pay, pay gaps, pay, pay gaps yeah. right? Um, which if you were maybe a, a male CEO, you would not have, you would have just assumed whatever it may be. Right. So all of a sudden you're starting to operate equitably. What do we need to do to close that pay gap? Do we need to, you know, shift this and that shift these titles or we, you know, whatever else it is, there's a million layers of complexity about that. And instantly men are going to say, what about me? How Mm -hmm. come you're giving this person this opportunity or this, or this is reverse, you know, sexism or this reverse. So again, how you help a, an organization build culture around this so that they're really valuing the conversation around equity, understand why we might be disproportionately supporting one particular group Mm -hmm. given their historic marginalization or given the way in which they've been excluded forever and a day by the the own organization or this country, that it would be important for us to operate differently with certain groups to make sure that they can get to that same place. We have to build culture and a whole bunch around that. And so that's, and that stuff. takes time. That's why it takes Tons of time. <laughs> more than of time. two days. A lot of time. If it took two days, yeah, that'd be crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because some people um, feel like they're being attacked or, mm-hmm. right? It's like, okay, what? So, or they feel guilt and they have to move through that as well, I think. Tons. Yeah. Um, 
the other side. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think part of when we're working with uh, people in organizations, you know, we start out with a, a racial equity framework that is kind of the starting point for the conversation that then opens the door for, you know, all other groups who are being marginalized one way or the other. There is that that happens. So as we're starting to raise consciousness, which is kind of the first thing we do with organizations, <clears throat> is to start to norm language around this, understand why racial disparities take place, give them frameworks to understand that. Um, there is that. For white folks, there is both a sense of denial at times that, no, this isn't happening. It's They just need to work harder or this or that. Mm -hmm. And as consciousness raises with white folks and they see, oh, wait a minute, it isn't necessarily... A true meritocracy that we're sitting in, mm -hmm. right? And that certain folks, white folks in particular, have been positioned in a very particular way, mm -hmm. right? Given social location in a very particular way that has um, allowed them access into and be able to move up, right? In a way that people of color haven't, women haven't, et cetera. Um, as they raise consciousness around that, there is then almost a sense of guilt or shame. And part of our work is to be helping within when working with people, how do you not sit in that? Mm -hmm. Right. So if it's not guilt and shame, how do you actually take your consciousness and instead of centering yourself and saying, Oh, I'm guilty mm -hmm. now, I feel ashamed now, which just recenters themselves again yeah. in the conversation. <laughs> it's like, okay, what does it mean for me then to take this information, this consciousness, and actually start working together, engaging other white folks in this conversation, my own family, my kids, my coworkers, in getting energized and active within my organization around creating a more equitable space and a more inclusive space for everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. So it is a process of transformation in some ways where, uh, people have to kind of almost, you almost see them moving through. It's stages. like therapy for the workspace it or is. Yeah, whether it's a classroom or. Well, and that's what it's hard because, um, what we tell organizations is that, um, you cannot engage equity work without deeply personalizing it. Mm -hmm. And that has not been what we have done in the workspace. It's not definitely not what we have created space and time for. Yeah. And it's not always seen as productive. Mm -hmm. And so part of working with organizations is helping them understand that this is a different initiative. Mm -hmm. This is not, you know, your strategic planning process, although it's, it ends up in a strategic plan, but it's something that in which, you're going to need to personalize it because we have to reflect on and you have to get conscious of what has shaped the way you see the world mm -hmm. and what does it mean to begin to see through a different lens. And that's hard work for everybody, for folks of color, for women, name the, name the group, it's hard work. Um, and so we need to create space and time to do that. And we also understand that the more connected people are to these issues, the more they personalize it, the more that they don't see Ferguson as, oh, that's some, something that happened in Ferguson. I have no connection to that. Michael mm -hmm. Brown, you know, he, I feel bad. I wish it hadn't happened, but that's them. That's over there. It's not me. I have mm -hmm. no relationship to that. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the more that they can actually connect to that, not as if they can have the exact experience of the black community, um, but, or, you know, Michael Brown's family, any of that, but the more they recognize that, Hey, like that injustice, I can connect, that is injustice that I'm connected to. And somehow I'm participating in it, mm -hmm. even hundreds, thousands of miles away. The more they start building will and passion around this. And it's funny as we're moving in this work, what we're seeing is 
there's certain elements that become essential. And the number one is will mm. and passion, because what this will happen, what will happen is eventually you can't just be in conversations all day long that you're in terms of, in which you're raising consciousness and everyone's seeing the world differently and waking up and all this stuff. You actually have to act on that yeah. consciousness. And so the moment a business in this political climate decides to act on, on equity decides to actually stand very firmly in that is the moment you see massive pushback. So if you aren't fully engaged, fully committed, uh, all in on this conversation, you're going to probably do to the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. And you're just going to create mm -hmm. more frustration in your organization, all that. So personalizing it and working through the guilt, the shame, the whatever else it is, and getting to a more energized space around it becomes essential. Yeah, especially, like you said, we've heard the opposite. Like, leave your shit at home and right. come to work and don't, you know, don't talk about it. We're not here to talk. We're here to work. Yeah, well, but, and I don't mean to say this. White people bring their, their shit to work all day long yeah. in terms of their racism <laughs> and in terms of their structures, right? So the shit actually started, people of color didn't actually ask for this shit. It's so we didn't true. ask to be invited to this shit. Yeah. We didn't ask to be shit on. We didn't ask to be, you know, all this kind of stuff. So it's like, I get, I get that, right? It's the irony of it. Like, just leave your shit at home. Yeah. Don't talk about it. But I can shit on you all day long. Uh -huh. But don't complain about it. Yeah. Like, don't say anything about it. Don't complain about it. I will fire you if you do. Let me keep shitting on you <laughs> and be and smile. Right. And the more you smile, the more I shit on you, the more you smile, the more you have access to move up. Right. Like that's how we want to play this game. Yeah. And it's just like, huh. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, yeah. White people are going to feel guilty and ashamed when they realize, holy shit, I've been shitting on people. <laughs> Right. I didn't even know it. I was right. Or, and I've been profiting off of it. Yeah. Like I've been profiting off of this. Right. So yeah, there were used to being told, <laughs> don't bring your stuff right into the workspace. And, and we can the way we want to do it. Um, and again, I, when, that's why we're talking about a whole new foundation that mm -hmm. we have been built on a foundation that has been really constructed from the moment colonization happened we've really constructed institutions in a way that it just serves basically white male property owners. I mean, very, actually not very overtly mm -hmm. has been constructed for white male property owners. Right. So our inability to kind of reflect on that as a country, our inability to reflect on that individually or as an organization has allowed us to keep reinforcing those structures, right. And cementing them, again and again and again it's and to the point where we can't actually see it. And so um, we have to unpack that. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's just, that's why when I was getting to, I was like, tell me the white CEO that is going to actually want to, to make do this. Yeah. Right. Like it does, it may, and, it doesn't I was make like, sense. and, and tell me, Hanif, why would you, <laughs> that's why I was like, I have a two year old daughter. Why am I doing this? But one of the things that's been really, I guess, there's a lot of things that aren't energizing and a lot of things that leave me feeling hopeless. But one of the things that leaves me feeling hopeful is that people have been open to it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, people have been interested in saying, okay, I want to understand why these disparities are there. I'm big enough and can handle emotionally um, a, a more introspective look. As long as that I can leverage that introspection to my business changing, mm -hmm. right? I want that to happen. And so it's been kind of surprising to see organizations being willing to do both the personal work um, and then translate to, to and, I, and I'll say this, 
the, the personal stuff that we're talking about, people always get into it and feel like, oh, that's going to be super hard and super difficult. To me, they quickly find out that that's difficult and hard. It is nowhere near as difficult when you actually have to change your behavior. Yeah. Right. So as an organization, when you have to hire differently, when you have to market differently, when you have to do your finance differently, right, when you're putting an equity lens onto every aspect of your business and all of a sudden you're having to change, right, that's to me, that's actually becomes way more difficult for Mm -hmm. organizations than the conversation around, you know, white supremacy or, you know, sexism in the workspace, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So. It's kind of ironic. We get people get super nervous and get kind of almost focused on the more personal aspects of the work. Um, it's for us. Who gets more nervous, the people or the uh, the people at the top thinking it's like an HR nightmare, or the people going through it, the process? You know, people get nervous in in different spaces. So for sure, at the top, there is a nervousness um, because most CEOs or most executive directors have a general sense of what their outcome is going to be. And they've kind of been driven that like I have an outcome and these are the five steps I take to get to that outcome. And I can build a strategy around that and and make that happen. And this process is much more adaptive in nature. And so there's an outcome there, you know, which will be an equity plan that has da da da. But to get there, it's messy. Mm -hmm. And so leadership is constantly worried about, you know, this is going to rock the boat. How are people going to feel? It, it, it's hard to predict. Um, I can give you a clear roadmap, but we're not going to stay in that. Right. So learning to engage ambiguity and be okay with that yeah. becomes difficult. And that's a life lesson. It's huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Cause for us, it's where learning actually happens. If mm-hmm. you're in the box and you're doing what you know, you can't learn. And so you have to be out of the box. Our work is to not have an organization go so far to the box, they're in the danger zone. So what Mm -hmm. is that like learning zone? If that makes any sense that, that an organization needs to sit in and what's that healthy dose of ambiguity that they need to be operating in and how do we give them as much clarity as they need to keep moving forward? So management is both nervous about that and unclear also how to manage in a more inclusive way. Right. And they're also going through their own identity. stuff. so you have, you know, sometimes we put a title like CEO on someone or executive director on someone and they become that becomes their salient primary identity. But if you were to remove that identity from them, they're a normal person who's got kids or who's got emotion, whatever else they've got. And so they're no different in that sense than whoever the line staff is or their marketing person, whatever. So if they're just a normal white person. (laughs) they don't know this stuff. Mm -hmm. So they've got this title where they're supposed to know how to make all that stuff. And so they're often going through their own transformation, their own seeing things differently. And they're having to deal with stakeholders who aren't on the same, they're not seeing the page. Yeah. So they're having to consider a customer base that may not see it the same way. And Mm -hmm. what is, how do I navigate that or a board or whatever else? And so they're in their own kind of world where they're going through their own stuff. They're trying to figure out how do I engage stakeholders? My stakeholders don't have a year to go through these, not giving up a year of their time. So how do I do all that? And they're oftentimes kind of isolated because their other peer EDs or CEOs aren't necessarily trying to do transformation work in their organization. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's a whole lot to be 
nervous about, which is why we talk about <clears throat> really having to build in some will and some courage and some passion around this, because you can make it through and you can actually step into leadership, which is what they, the position they have. It just is going to take oh, a little bit mm -hmm. of time. I want to ask about the types of issues that you um, focus on and, mm -hmm. and how that's changed over time. Um, you know, now we're talking maybe before it was more on um, race mm -hmm. and um, now it's race, sexuality, gender. Mm -hmm. There's so much there. Right. And then the language around it, too, because there's so much language to learn. And um, it could get, that's why it's great that you have so much time with them. Yeah. The language is a great. We'll start with the, the language mm -hmm. part, because I think it's important. I was talking with someone. Um, and they had mentioned, they had said something to me, which is we're stuck in this conversation because the, we're, it's so disjointed. The language is so disjointed. So the starting like language is key to any culture. I can't connect with you if I don't know how to address you or yeah. talk. And sometimes it's as basic as like, I seriously don't know how to address someone as black African-American and it seems basic, but people can get really paralyzed in that. Yeah, it's or true. what is the difference between diversity, equity, all these kinds of things. So you almost have to level set both norms around how to engage in these conversations and actually level set the language around that in an organization. So whether it's intersectionality or whether it's equity, diversity, inclusion, or whether it is what is actually racism actually mean to all of what is race, you know, as a social construct, all of these kinds of things, there's some level setting and fluency that people need to develop around this mm -hmm. that becomes super important. And so it just takes time to not just understand what the definition is, but then to begin to figure out how does that actually live in our organization? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so part of that then is, okay, how, who and how do we address? Because there's so many um, different ways people identify. Yeah. So one of the things, again, we, we start with a racial equity framework because for, for a couple of reasons, it is the conversation that we seem to not be able to get. Um, and so from the start, uh, name the social indicator, you can name it and there's going to be a racial disparity, right? And even though it's been something since colonization that we can't seem to talk about, even though it's a key disparity or in every indicator that we're working with, we have we're paralyzed in that conversation. So from the most basic reason why we start with race is this idea that um, we don't know how to talk about it. And if we can learn how to have this conversation, put protocols around it, then we can have other conversations about gender, all that stuff. The second reason is because um, people often say, hey, um, when you just isolate race, you're minimizing gender, you're minimizing this and that, right? Mm -hmm. And we actually believe that starting with race allows us to have a more complete conversation around gender, around poverty. So in other words, um, let's have the conversation about gender, but let's recognize um, that a white woman's experience isn't universal, right? And But when we start the conversations around gender, that tends to be what happens, mm -hmm. right? So let's talk about white women getting 78 cents on the dollar, but then let's also talk about native women getting 59 cents. Yeah. Right. And what that experience is. And so a native woman's experience um, or a black woman's experience is not the same as a white woman's experience. And if we don't start with a framework around race, we tend to not have that conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and then the final thing I'll say, and this is kind of the harder truth I think for white folks to get is that there's a, 
uncomfortable truth that this country will not kind of refuses to recognize. And that's that at the foundation of this country, and this is not hyperbole, it's just like fact, sits a racial hierarchy mm-hmm. that very clearly, very overtly put white people at top, put black people at the bottom, the attempted genocide of Native Americans that they don't actually exist on that particular hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it doesn't mean that people, brown folks in the middle were having some medium experience of racism. It just means this is the actual literal racial hierarchy put in place. And our inability to understand that we have organized ourselves, we have organized our institutions, we've organized our culture around this hierarchy. In other words, every institution has actually been constructed to support that hierarchy. Our culture, we've embedded this in our culture, narratives, norms, uh, belief systems that reinforce that hierarchy has allowed us to go from slavery to Jim Crow, to the internment of the Japanese, to mass incarceration, to our current political climate. It just keeps repeating itself. And so it's located in our organizations as well. So part of our understanding of how to begin to work through this is if we can begin to say, uh, if not this, then what? Once we get into that then what question, we're in a a more empowered state. But we can't get to the then what if we're denying this Mm -hmm. is. Right. So isolating race for us is an incomplete conversation because race in of itself, aside from a social construction, um, is incomplete. It's a there's tons of so many intersections around it, but it's a starting point for us because it allows us to give a basic framework around how a racial disparity happens. It allows us to enter into that conversation. And now we can enter in as, as people start to get more fluent in the conversation. We can say, OK, it isn't just race because it's an intersectional conversation, right? So what about, it's not just about blackness. I mean, it is, in, if we're talking about that, but it was, what's the black woman's experience in this conversation? What's a black man's experience? What's the trans black? And so like, you go on and on. And so again, the fluency in the language becomes really, really important when we work with organizations, understanding how intersectional these conversations can be uh, becomes really important. And then beginning to say, okay, where and how do we deliver that? So if we think about women, just looking at um, the easy thing to be able to say is look at a, a an org chart and say, wow, we're at whatever, 14% women in our organization, right? And we need to increase that. We're not reflective of that. One step lower says, oh, wow. And we are at 0% Native American women. Yeah. Right. So what? So in, if we don't have that or Latinas or whatever, you know what, if we don't actually have that intersectional lens, if we don't actually have a way to kind of peel back we meet we tend to again leave the darker the shade the farther out in the margins you go even when we're done we're talking about equity work does that does that make sense it totally makes sense yeah i think that's really important to point out Mm. yeah thank you Mm -hmm. and how has um how has your experience with this work changed since the election (laughs) Um, i I think some people uh, including myself are more um involved mm -hmm. um and then again, the, obviously there, there's backlash and there's a lot of other things going on, but I'm just curious. For some folks, um, I remember we had this one CEO who, uh, before the election just said, Hey, your price tag's too, too high. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, love to do it <laughs> after the election was like, I need to do this right now. Can <laughs> yeah. you start tomorrow? Yeah, exactly. It was like literally like, okay. Um, I realized my bad. I need to like, so in some ways it's activated folks, um, or it's brought to the surface, um, what we've been in denial about a lot. Right. And so it's harder 
when we're in spaces for folks to deny that kind of the frameworks we're bringing are in place um, that are actually real. They still do. Um, but more folks are, I think, open to the conversation. I guess one of the things that this administration has done is it's made it increasingly more difficult uh, to be neutral. And because the way in which his policies are marginalizing almost across the board, whether you're in the environment, whether you're a woman, whether you're a person, name the group, there's policy coming through that is going to impact you in a really negative way. Um, more and more people are saying, okay, are building connection to this idea of equity and inclusion and all that. So on one hand, it's open the door um, and more folks are interested in having an honest conversation. On the other hand, for communities of color, his policies, and not just his, that whole group, um, are really uh, impacting communities of color. So we're not just talking about, you know, we're talking about families being torn apart. You know, we're talking about, um, mm -hmm. you know, our LGBT community, like literally, I feel like under attack. You know, mm -hmm. like in terms of just safety rights and the equal rights in the workplace to, you know, name it. We're talking about our environment that's about to like, so. Yeah. So what I'm seeing is as we enter into these conversations and it's happening so fast, right? Like um, one of the coworkers I work with said, you know, we've read about this in, the, in our history books, but our generation hasn't ex like racism, white supremacy been operating mass incarceration, all that, all this has been happening. The, the way it's happening through this president, the amount of legislation happening, the speed at which we're not used to that, mm -hmm. right? Um, in, in that kind of way. And so it's left, I think, folks a little off balance for a second. And so I think for, for folks of color, folks who are identifying in marginalized groups, addressing these issues, is, we, we were super conscious and careful of the trauma that they're in and that we could be poking at as we kind of start personalizing these mm -hmm. conversations because it's literally their communities right now that are being targeted to be banned or, you know, being called murders and rapists. I mean, name it. So I think communities are coming and white folks are coming more open. Hey, there might be stuff that's happening. Other communities are coming in a space of like frustration, anger. It's just, so it's just a weird space. It's yeah. a more volatile space. Let me put it that way that mm -hmm. we're operating in. And mm -hmm. uh, specifically when we're talking about communities of color, when we're working with them, we're just super conscious of like, wow, they have to deal with, we're having to deal with racism when we turn on the news and we hear president refer to countries as shitholes and, you know, this and this and that. Right. And I have to watch families being torn apart. I have to wonder, am I going to get banned? All these kinds of things. Now, when I go into the workspace, I have to talk about it too. Like yeah. I'm not up for that. Right. So it's both made it more difficult to say, okay, Hey, for us to work through the racism that's showing up in your workspace or the sexism that's working up in your workspace or whatever it is, is like we have to address it and that's going to be painful. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do we do that very carefully, very methodically, uh, consciously, all of that. And then you have other folks saying like, we can't move fast enough on this. And I'm mm -hmm. not going to generalize all people of color in that space. I'm yeah. just saying that that is something we have to be conscious of because certainly folks of color come to the space and are saying, let's get energized. Let's get action. Let's, yeah. let's get action. It's just, More it's volatile painful. on that. There's yeah. so much happening that you're in a space and it could be the full range of experience that's happening there. And you've got to, 
organize your work to make sure that you're inclusive of all that's happening in that space. That's a lot yeah. to take on. Uh, but what a privilege to mm. be doing this work and how fulfilling and um, for you. And I see that. And I just really want to take the time to appreciate you mm. for doing this and for coming here and sharing it with us. So nice. Thank you. Thank you sure. for being here. It was really fun. Right on. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> you barely got to drink. I some. know, right? It's okay, though. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you. So keep in touch and I'll see you next time.